Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and later in this programme I'll be talking to Alex Preston about his debut novel, This Bleeding City, set against the backdrop of the financial meltdown. You know, I think it was actually a, a very nice escape when things were melting down to be able to get home at the end of a long day and just sit at the computer and, and write. And it did feel like something that I needed to write. It felt very much a, a, a kind of compulsion to set down this story. My first guest today is Robin Dunbar, who's Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Oxford. And if that discipline is a new one to you, don't worry, Robin is about to explain exactly what it is. Robin's books include The Trouble with Science, described by the Sunday Times as an eloquent riposte to the anti-science lobby, and most recently The Human Story, which new scientists called punchy and provocative. The book he has just published is called How Many Friends Does One Person Need? And if you listen to the interview, you'll find out the answer. You'll also find out why a scientist would take an interest in Lonely Hearts columns, why our brains are not perfectly adapted to the demands the modern world makes of them, and you'll hear what an Oxford professor makes of Twitter. First, though, here's Robin explaining what evolutionary anthropology is. I guess evolutionary anthropology and evolutionary psychology are not themselves that different in the sense that pretty much everything that comes under the rubric of evolutionary psychology, which is really to do with the origins of the human mind as much as anything else, also sort of now anyway features in evolutionary anthropology. Evolutionary anthropology would just add the bones and the stones in as well of, of sort of human evolution. So the sort of anatomical aspects of how we got the shape of body we have and you know, obviously the stone tools that were left littered about the landscape by our ancestors. And in the book you mentioned that your interest in evolution dates back to your boyhood and uh, an American grandmother who, who piqued that interest. Yes, it was very strange, really, actually, because my American grandmother was a f- absolutely fierce Presbyterian uh, missionary, in fact. But she was a surgeon as well, by background. That's how she, you know, sort of, that, that's what she did as a missionary, as a missionary doctor. And so she had enough of the science in her to be very interested in human evolution. It didn't phase her in the way that the evolutionary story is phased, let's say, the sort of creationist wing of the Protestant church. And I guess the discipline was sort of emergent as your career developed. When, when you began it, it didn't exist in its, its current shape. It really didn't. And, and a gr- almost everything I do hardly existed when I started, actually. I mean, it's been quite exciting because we've been through, in my lifetime, a couple of major scientific revolutions really i mean you had the bare bones of the human evolution story in the sense that they discovered some fossils and they were perhaps over the you know from about the 1850s when the first human fossils were actually recognized for what they were you'd had you know a century of uh, odd fossils here and there and there was a kind of what turns out to be rather a rudimentary account of how these fossils linked together to create the human tree which was very sparse and by comparison with what we now understand it to be like but you know the rate at which fossils have been discovered has been exponential so probably something like 80% of all known human fossils were discovered since I started getting interested in this 
in the 1950s. And what was it that sort of drew your curiosity on? Because the book describes a, a wealth of different research projects and, and areas of, of human uh, life. So is it this sort of overarching question of what is it that makes us human that sort of pulled you forward? Not really, actually. It's kind of odd because I began life as a philosopher. That's what I was really interested in. And that's what I wanted to do at school. And so I did a degree in philosophy, but it was combined with psychology. And I always say, if I had done a plain philosophy degree, I would probably now be quite a good, good second-hand car salesman in Blackpool, but no better. <laughs> but because I had to do psychology with it, and I had no background in the sciences, psychology really introduced me to the sciences. And to tell the truth, what probably made the big difference was one of our main courses in the first year of that psychology was actually taught by the ethologist Tinberg. And this was at the sort of height of the big initial development in the study of animal behavior of animals in the out there in the field. Jane Goodall had just gone out to start her studies of chimpanzees at Gombe. And so this was sort of very much in the air. And I just got drawn into that. And in fact, the very sort of first 10, 15 years of my academic career was actually spent watching monkeys. All through the book, it's, it's clearly a, an important issue looking at how especially the great apes behave and comparing their behaviour with ours, looking for similarities but also differences. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid to say that the question of how humans are different from great apes or alternatively whether great apes are really human is one of those things that's come to dominate this area in the last 10, 15 years in particular. And I kind of, I mean, my background is more in a sense in, in evolutionary biology, zoology. So I look at the world and I'm more inclined to ask, well, yes, humans are just kind of great apes. We don't have to pretend to make great apes on our side of some uh, great boundary that separates the world into two kinds, as it were. We're just part of a continuum. And okay, we do stuff that nobody else does, and that needs an explanation. But at the end of the day, we're just another great ape, albeit a very smart one. But that position must lead to a lot of resistance. I think there's quite a lot of um, unwillingness, isn't there, to, to go along with that? I'm not really sure that probably the majority of people are that sort of um, would disagree that much with it. I mean, obviously, you've got the sort of creationist wing. I guess in all the um, Abrahamic religions, which sort of separate humans off in a in a very distinctive sort of way from from animals, and and won't have any truck at all with the idea that humans might have evolved as part of a natural world, they're always going to be difficult to deal with because that's a matter of belief, and you know, nothing you can say will dissuade them otherwise. Usually, but at the end of the day, I think most people, certainly in Europe, are perfectly happy with uh, you know the idea that humans have evolved even you know the Catholic Church has accepted it as kosher now tell me about Dunbar's number that appears on the the front cover of the book tell, tell me um, what it is Dunbar's number is the number itself is 150 but what it is is the number of people you can have a relationship with. That's to say a relationship that's kind of based on a history, it's built up over time, It's there's a relationship of kind of reciprocity and obligation in there, 
they're the kind of people that you would consider sending Christmas cards to, for example. Or you might reasonably think of calling in on if you happen to be um, in their neck of the woods. It relates to the cognitive capacity of our brains. It's because the number is 150 because beyond that we, we can't really cope with a larger number of friends. The origins of us come, go back to trying to understand what limits social group size in primates. So we happen to come up with a, quite a nice relationship between social group size and the si relative size of, of the brain across a whole range of primate species. And then one day I was looking at this and I idly thought, I wonder what we could do with humans if we plugged human brains into this. What would it tell us? And that produced this number 150. But what it does seem to sort of really identify is the limits on the number of individuals you can have a relationship of obligation with in the end. So when you look at modern phenomena like Facebook, does that change things in any way? I was thinking, you know, there would have been a time when the relationships we had were only with people in our immediate physical vicinity. And then when you get things like post and telephones, that, that you begin to have different kinds of long distance relationships. So by the time you get to Facebook, are, are those mainly, you know, superficial relationships, that, that clearly numerical, statistical, computational kind of um, tallies rather than anything more far-reaching? In other words, we're not changing our, our innate capacities or human relationships. It seems that what Facebook does really is just allow you to keep contact with people whom you have known in the past, basically. That's to say, if you look at most people's Facebook pages as it were and the number of people they have listed as friends typically it's somewhere between about 120 and 150 in other words they've got everybody there perhaps except granny who's not on the internet their kind of facebook world is their social world on the other hand obviously you've had this sort of competitive streak you know how many facebook friends have you got well i've got 300 well i've got 500 and it it really looks as though most of those people out beyond the 150 that you get sort of signed up, kind of more like voyeurs on your social world. You don't really have that much of a relationship with them. I mean, they're part of that sort of sector of people whom you know, you've met, you recognise who they are, you know their name. You might say hello to in the street, but probably you wouldn't think of going and having a drink with them unless you were very bored. And what about Twitter? Is there an, an evolutionary anthropological sort of perspective on that? I have no idea about Twitter. <laughs> it's a mystery to me. I mean, it, it is very strange, but I think there is a sense that we, we are fascinated by the doings of, as it were, the great and the good or celebrities, you know, whatever defines them as celebrities. And it's those people that seem to, more than any other, as far as, at least as far as I can make out, create the sort of world of Twitter. In other words, if Joe Smith started a Twitter feed, as it were, and kept writing on what he had for breakfast and the like, probably only a very small number of people would be interested. But if Stephen Fry does it, then everybody signs up because they all want to know what Stephen Fry is doing. 
I think as a sometime Twitter user and also someone who's read your book and absorbed some of the, the message in it, that male and female tweeting obeys the same kind of patterns that other forms of, of communication obey in that I think male tweeting tends to be more broadcasting, sort of saying sort of things about one's own status, whereas female seems to be much more about communicating within a, a social group. That's actually very interesting. I mean, I, I, I have uh, steered as far clear of Twitter as I can possibly do. Um, I'm not even on Facebook. <laughs> Never mind, you know, modern versions, as it were, upmarket versions like Twitter. So that's kind of interesting to know. And one of the, it's interesting in the context of the fact that men and women do seem to have organised their social worlds in very different ways. One of the, 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 the sort of pointers in that direction is a study we've just finished looking at how youngsters use their mobile phones. This is in the transition to go to university, as it were, and how they use them to keep up with friends at home. And it's very, very striking. The thing that causes relationships which would normally sort of die off, let's say relationships with friends, uh, would normally sort of decline over time. What stops them, those relationships declining for girls, is the opportunity to talk. And what stops relationships declining for boys is doing stuff together. Right? So that, as a result of that, they use their mobile phones in a very different way. So the girls have these long conversations. The boys use it for 15 seconds. They see you down at the pub at 7 o'clock. That's, that's the end of the conversation. Should we be surprised then when your discipline turns up results which we kind of instinctively feel to be right, that men and women have different communication strategies, that boys without girls, you talk about China and the population imbalance, you know, boys without girls spell trouble. Or does that simply mean that we intuitively know things about human behaviour, which your discipline is sort of producing evidence for? I think it was actually Richard Dawkins commented once that uh, the best kind of science is that which tells you what you already know. In other words, you go, oh, yeah, I knew that all along. I just never thought about it. It actually makes it clear what's going on. And, of course, deep science, the outer reaches of space or the inner reaches of physics and atoms and so on, we really can't grasp. But human behavior, we live human behavior night and day. We're very good at it. And therefore, you know, it's not surprising that what we do in studying this really uncovers a lot of the stuff which we know intuitively. The problem is we don't often actually understand it. We know how to, how to operate with it. And I suppose this is one of the hallmarks of humans. We're extremely good at spotting correlations in the world. You know, that there are perfectly good reasons why astrology, as it were, might work because it's on a, an annual cycle and the seasons go with that and you it doesn't take a lot of experience in the world to realize that if you plant your crops the times when certain zodiac signs are in the ascendant they do better than at other times so we're very good at spotting those kind of correlations what we're not obviously good at is uh, figuring out why that's so because that actually requires deep science so from our point of view we're kind of uncovering and making explicit i suppose some of the things which we live by, but we can go one layer deeper than that and explain both what the origins of those features are in evolutionary terms, why they've come to be that way rather than any other way, and also what the mechanisms are that make them possible. So the cognitive 
the neuroscience level, you know, what it is about the human brain that produces these, is sort of prepared, as it were, uh, to produce those kind of effects. And I suppose to completely overturn my previous question, the human brain is also very good intuitively at seeing causality where there is no causality. And you write about dichotomies, perceiving the world in dichotomous terms, where in fact, that's, you know, we, we've got a spectrum. So it's not, its intuitions are not always well-founded. No, that is fair, absolutely fair. I'm, I think the problem is we know the world is driven by causes, as it were. When we kick a table, it hurts. You know, if you kick a ball, it moves. These kind of things. So this is part of everyday physics. So in order to live in that world, we have to be able to predict it and under, you know, understand at least how it works well enough to be able to predict into the future what's going to happen. So our brain kind of does work overtime on that. That's absolutely true. But the world is very complicated. And to understand the real complexity of the world would require enormous computing power. But most of the time you don't need that. You know, you can get by with really quite large simplifications. Hence our tendency to view the world in simple dichotomies, sort of separate black, black and white, as it were, cartoon version of the world. And that's perfectly good enough to get us through life and you know, quite happily. It's not good enough, you know, to keep tsunamis at bay, though. Well, as, as the world becomes more complex, I mean, you cite the, um, the, the tag Stone Age Minds in a Space Age World. Do we become less and less well adapted to coping with the complexity of the world? You know, going back to the 150 individuals, that was how the world was for a long time. But now it's not. You know, we're coping with all sorts of other different levels of interaction. I think the problem that we're having now is actually that we are stuck with this sort of mindset that's done us very well up to now. And it's designed to work in small scale societies. And clearly, you know, we've since the industrial revolution in particular, perhaps since the agricultural revolution when settlements first started, but I think really since the industrial revolution in the middle of the 19th century, where you had massive concentrations of people in one place to provide big labor forces. Our physical environment is much more on a much larger scale than we have ever experienced in our evolutionary history. So in some sense, we're not well adapted to it. And there is another aspect to that that's quite important, and that is the kind of economic mobility we have. So, you know, you're, you're born in, I don't know, let's say uh, Huddersfield, and you go to university and Bath and then you go off to your first job in London and then a few years later your firm moves you to Birmingham or something like that and you sort of go through life building up little pockets of friends in each of these places whom you leave behind and so you end up with these very fragmented social networks which don't have the kind of compact density that natural social networks have in traditional societies and indeed probably had in Britain and the rest of Europe, right up until maybe as late as the 1950s, where you had small rural communities, even, you know, if you think of the sort of east end of London slum communities, you know, they were very, the street was the street almost, you know, Coronation Street, as it were, where everybody knows everybody else. Everybody's bedded into this very complex, dense web of interrelationships. And that contrast from, from that past, which was actually very recent, really, to the present state where you have these, ten, people tend to have these fragmented networks, 
is, I think, a very big jump and probably we're not coping very well with it. Does human behaviour throw up surprises when you conduct research? Do you sometimes encounter things which seem to run against all your expectations based on what you know about human behaviour? Well, there is a rule in science which says never say never mm. <laughs> <laughs> because the world has a way of slapping you in the face when, you, when you're too cocksure about what you think you know. But it is, I mean, that's what, in a way, what the whole process of science is about. It's about pushing your theories to the limit in order to find the places where they don't work because that tells you what the limits on that theory is and therefore what is missing from it from the complete explanation. So it's always kind of fun when you uh, find something that you didn't expect. And I, I guess this whole relationship between group size and brain size in the primates was really utterly unexpected. I don't think anybody anticipated that that would be true. And are there social policy issues that or implications of what you do? I mean, it seemed to me that there are potentially quite a lot about how we organise society and all sorts of other human relationships. There are, I think, uh, not least for things like organisational structure, because one of the implications of what we do has been that relationships of obligation are really close into you. And therefore, if your organisation is too big, you will lose that sense of belonging to a community and commitment to the other members of the community that actually makes businesses... Uh, government, departments, you name it, actually work effectively. And the same sort of implication must follow on for the organisation, I suspect anyway, for the organisation of things like schools. One just wonders whether modern schools, where they may maybe have 1,500 students in the place, are just too big. There are implications, I think, for the structure of communities in terms of kind of local government, as it were, you kind of wonder, well, how can we get back to that sense of commitment to the community as a community, to the project, as it were, of the community in the way that small rural communities essentially used to be, such that they are once again providing that kind of social support to the members of the community. It's, it's a problem I think we have to try and solve, but I'm not sure I can see the way to solve it. Let me ask you finally, Robin, you researched Lonely Hearts columns. What were you looking for there? We were interested in mate choice, essentially. What traits men and women base their choice of mates on? And this really arose out of a lot of work that had been done on animals in general, where there's this sort of a whole issue of the difference between the two sexes in the criteria which they use to judge an ideal mate it had been developed over about 20 years and was very very sophisticated and it just seemed an interesting question to ask of humans at the point at which i discovered the existence of lonely heart sets because here was just a little it summarized in a very very few words just the nub of what people were asking for and of course because they often at least in those days had to pay for the ad they weren't always free that made them think carefully before they put words to paper, as it were. And so it gave you a sense of what it was that, uh, in an ideal world, and you have to see Lonely Hearts ads as the first bid, as it were, in a game of poker. 
Robin Dunbar. How many friends does one person need is out now in hardback. My second guest today is Alex Preston, whose debut novel, This Bleeding City, is a rare thing. A novel about the world of high finance, written from the inside. Not a crude attempt to put the boot in, but to understand what makes those who work in the city tick. Not an apologia for the city boys, is how Alex has expressed it elsewhere, but neither an attempt to portray them as monsters. Thus his hero, Charlie Wales, may be self-deluded, but he's not unfeeling. He's an outsider who comes to the party too late, just in time for the first shockwaves that will ultimately lead to the crash. I asked Alex first about the origins of the book. How did it come together in his imagination? It's interesting because actually the markets I work in and, and was working in when I began the book turned much sooner than than the broader equity markets and so actually it was it was like getting a sneak preview of what was to come i started the book in the summer of 2007 and already there have been whisperings of crisis on the horizon and uh, you'd had subprime issues in the states you'd had some whisperings out of Bear Stearns that things were going badly for a couple of their funds but generically the market was still I guess to external observers in wonderful shape and so being rather a catastrophic thinker I extrapolated out what were these initial murmurings into something far more dramatic now I absolutely didn't spot what was to come and clearly the book was being written as things deteriorated and as we moved towards the end of 2007 and it became clear that what had started off as some issues within a very specific part of the US mortgage market had multiplied into something which really faced, uh, which which caused the entire financial system to, to, to be under threat. But it was the case that at the time of writing the book, I don't think I could ever have predicted that things would get as bad as they were to get. And I actually was reading a lot about earlier financial panics. And it's, I suppose, the fact that we haven't had one since the 70s that means, or, or, or I haven't had a dramatic one since the 70s. And, and I guess, you know, to a lesser extent, the events of late, uh, the late 1980s, and, and then again, the Russian crisis. But all of those things seem to me to have been very contained, whereas this was really a systemic failure. And so it actually looks back much more to the kind of crises that, that occurred at the beginning of the 20th century. So if you look at the panics of, I believe, 1907 and 1913, particularly, these were events when and the entire system was was fundamentally challenged as to whether it could continue to exist in the same way. And then obviously the Great Crash of 29, which which I think has its most um, clear reflection in, in what's going on now. I was reading some of the literature from that time. I mean, Frank Norris's The Pit is a, is a wonderful early panic novel and, and really could have been written about this most recent crash. And so I was looking to these earlier incarnations of, of crisis writing. And, you know, major influence for me was that I, at the time I was reading the short stories of Scott Fitzgerald, and there is a short story called Return to Babylon, where a trader, I don't think he's identified as a trader, but, but somebody who had made a lot of money during the 20s in the, in, the, in the bull market that preceded the crash, returns to Paris where he had, I guess, spent the last years of dissolution before the, um, the, the crash happened. And he's kind of taking stock of, of his life. And I thought how interesting it was to try and create a character who 
if not wholly sympathetic, wasn't the kind of villain that financial characters are usually portrayed as in, in literature, and I guess most recently by um, by Sebastian Folks in A Week in December, um, where John Veals, the hedge fund manager there, is just a kind of comic book villain. And uh, I thought that it would be more interesting to try and give an insight into how these people were thinking when this was happening and 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 you know particularly a, a very young generation how they were affected by being sucked into this bull market almost at its its tail when when it was all the music had already played and then hit with this enormous crash when when everything upon which they had built their conceptions of themselves the things that had been fundamental to um to how they they viewed themselves was was being questioned and and and, and ripped apart it must have taken considerable sang-froid while the seismograph was beginning to twitch to, you know, maintain your day job, as it were, and also to be writing a novel. And in a sense, I suppose, what was bad for the financial world was potentially good and it was material for you as a novelist. How did you manage to to work within that tension? You know, I think it was actually a, a very nice escape when things were melting down to be able to get home at the end of a long day and just sit at the computer and, and write and it did feel like something that I needed to write it felt very much a, a, a kind of compulsion to set down this story it had been churning away at the back of my mind for for a little while it was not something that uh, was in any way painful to write and uh, a lot of what we did as people within the markets in 2007 and 2008 was really just sit and watch and try and work out what was going to happen, what was going on even. And actually writing something like this, thinking about what are the motives here, what are the the animal instincts that are driving the markets at this point in time, it was very useful for me and, and actually I think was potentially one way of trying to see through to how the, the world would look after the crash. Introduce us to Charlie Wales, your protagonist, and tell me, is is he typical of a certain type of, of young man in the city? He's trying to pick up on, on a number of, I guess, different characters who I'm using as, as the foundation for, for Charlie. Charlie Wales is the name of the protagonist in the, in the Scott Fitzgerald story, which is where the name came from. It's not a, a bleak reference to the future King of England. Um, Charlie has come from a, a, a very solidly middle-class background. Father, sort of up and down, unemployed, thoughtful, intellectual, perhaps born in, in the wrong time. Mother, again, sometime teacher. Very, very sort of solidly middle-class um, from a seaside town in the south of England. And he goes up to Edinburgh and he's suddenly uh, greeted by, uh, I guess, new money, by the allure of money, by the glamour that surrounds so many of the characters that he meets up there who have uh, black tie dinner parties every other night and uh, and go off to their to their shooting lodges and their houses in on the Côte d'Azur and he finds this incredibly alluring and some of the most successful people that I've met in the city have come from an outsider's position a lot of them are scholarship boys at public schools a lot of them went to Oxbridge and and got 
tied in with the whole kind of Bullingdon shimmer that surrounds those institutions. And there is this sense of people needing to prove themselves and needing to prove it in, in purely financial terms. You know, there is this sense that Charlie is just driven by a need to justify his place among his peer group at Edinburgh and even show these people who have on occasion talked down to him and who always I think treat him as an outsider that he can be one of them and of course what is I guess tragic for Charlie I think maybe tragic is is not a word one should use about anyone in the financial services industry at this point is that of course by the time he has joined the city and by the time he proves himself as somebody who can actually cut it in the city, and I think he is actually probably quite good at his job, the ridiculous telephone number bonuses have stopped being paid and he's left trying to stay afloat in a market where everyone else is sinking. The city does seem to exact a particularly high price, and I was struck by how early in the book disillusionment seems to settle on many of the characters. It's quite a a telling moment before before Charlie even has his job where he gets up and he looks out the window at six o'clock in the morning and two of his former friends from university are trudging off to their accountancy lives and it seems like and, and Vero, um, one of his closest friends, is studying law and it, it does seem that there's a great oppressive weight falls on these characters because of the life that they've chosen. I mean that really is the critique here which is that I think that people are ending up trading a great deal of what should be you know some of their best uh, years in exchange for the promise of a kind of moneyed utopia sometime in their 30s or 40s and whether it's my generation or whether it's something that, that every generation experiences you know I went from small schools and and a very close family to a university where I was you know I had a wonderful time and and very close nurturing environment and suddenly thrust into the city and uh, and having to suddenly take things terribly seriously it did seem like an incredible break from what I had experienced before and and I was rather sad that no one had warned me about this but of course it is the great iniquity of the of the milk round that it holds out all of these things i think one of the really good things to come out of this most recent crash is perhaps the death of the milk round because i would just urge anyone who is looking at a life in the city or corporate law or any of these things to to at least put it off for a few years and do something fun and do something because I, I, I really don't believe that there are ma- that many people for whom it is a vocation. I think it is a, a job that can can be extremely interesting but I do think that uh, people should at least take their time to work out if it's something they want to do. I imagine you've got quite a, a rich fund of characters to draw on when, you, when you're portraying some of these characters and I was wondering when the book is published will people be recognising themselves in the um, uh, Silver Birch company for which Charlie works? So the question I get asked the most is, is you know, so who's who and, and who did you build these people upon? I mean, it it absolutely isn't a reflection of my own experience. I've never worked anywhere, even remotely like Silver Birch. It, 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 I think what I draw upon is a type and broad number of chats, interviews, discussions I've had with people, particularly those people who were leaving the industry. I found something really fascinating about the people who gave up during the crash and 
I keep a little store of uh, of emails on my computer that w- that are goodbye emails and people who have gone off to work on a game farm in South Africa, a guy who's gone to teach baseball at a um, uh, at a university in Southern California, a guy who's taking a year to do cookery courses in fifteen different countries around the world, and I just had these as little kind of beacons of hope from these people that that were going off to do something authentic, going off to do something that that really meant something to them. And so it, it absolutely isn't a Romana clay. It isn't something that is in any way identifiable. And actually no one will identify themselves in it because I wanted to create a work of fiction. I mean, this it would, would have perhaps been easier for me to write something that was fully autobiographical. But actually the story I had to tell was rather different from my own story. And, and I think hopefully represents something rather broader than than just one person's experience. And readers may be surprised by the fact that the characters who work for Silverbridge are not all selfish. There's actually quite a, a sense of, of camaraderie among some of the colleagues. You know, again, maybe that's to do with the way that these people are perceived, the way that they're represented in, in the media. And, and, you know, I return again to Folks' a, a Week in December, where there is this view of the of the hedge fund manager as this kind of automaton, entirely focused on money, entirely unable. I mean, I guess autistic, there seems to be a sense that there is this kind of inability for these people to emote. And that is why they are only obsessed with money. And, and I think absolutely there is you know these are these are humans too and whilst i do you know i think it it would have been foolhardy to try and portray the bankers as in any way victims here i do think that there is a sense that these people are people who are thinking deeply about where they are and particularly madison in in the novel who is I guess Charlie's closest friend at work is is somebody who is very much drawing upon a particular type who is fascinated by that world, who is deeply thoughtful about what is going on and is therefore perhaps even more impacted when, when the markets turn. And she can see how irrational what is going on is, but is un- unable in any way to really affect that. Yeah, and Madison is the one who, as you say, can foresee what's going to happen. But the culture is completely unprepared to acknowledge that. And I was I was struck with the language that her boss uses when things start to go wrong, bad market juju. And I wonder, is that is that true to life, that sort of almost sort of dismissive um, attitude to even the possibility of, of things going bad? As with any world, there are different types. There are those who rely on their wits, and there are those who, you know, rely on 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 research. And and you know, I think one of the things that we saw in this crash was that actually, it, a lot of the things were irrational. I mean, we could very clearly see things that were mispriced, but the markets would continue to to go down because that you just couldn't stand in the way of such a, a well of negative sentiment. And, and you know, I, I think it's very similar now. Looking at the market, I, I think we have risen ridiculously quickly, far too, far too fast. And there will be a correction. And I know that. But at the moment, the market is continuing to rally. People are continuing to be optimistic. And so it's almost impossible to have the perseverance needed to stand in the way of all that. Do you think lessons have have only partially been learned? I think that's actually a very optimistic way of viewing it. I think very little's been learned. I think that we have returned largely to where we were and I think it's going to be necessary to go through 
kind of the next round of things before we really work out what should a bank look like, what should the financial markets look like, who should be trading, public securities should derivatives A, exist, B, I guess, exist in the form they currently do. I think there are an enormous number of things that we will need to look at. And, and you know, my view is that we are going through kind of the third of, of, of three bubbles, the, the first of which was, I guess, the corporate debt bubble, then the consumer debt bubble, and now we're in a, in a sovereign debt bubble. And we need that final deflation, because really what has just happened is it's been a shifting of, of indebtedness from, from one entity to another, and the buck must stop with with the governments. And, uh, and, and how the governments get through this, I think, is going to be fascinating and potentially terrifying. Alex Preston. This Bleeding City is out now in large format paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I hope you can join me again next month to discover more highlights from the Faber list, including James Shapiro on his new book, Contested Will, Who Wrote Shakespeare? Until then, thank you for listening, and goodbye.